18Q0075, Anthony R. Bibbs et al. versus Toyota Motor Corporation et al., Roy Barnes and Robert Shealy for appellants, Frank Lowry for appellees. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, who will be arguing first, Mr. Shealy? Yes, Robert. Thank you. Thank you. May it please the court. <clears throat> I'm Bob Cheeley, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here and present this case on behalf of the Bibbs family to you today. Joining me is uh, Governor Roy Barnes, who will handle a uh, uh, por portion of the argument. And joining us today is my partner, Keith Pittman, who was with me when we tried the original case in 1995. And uh, Keith Fryer. And, uh, Professor Tom Eaton is joining us today as well. As I said, <clears throat> I would like to outline uh, factually the important salient facts surrounding this appeal or this uh, certification of uh, the issue from the U.S. District Court. We will show that based upon over 160 years of Georgia case law, and the facts surrounding the high-low agreement that was entered into between the plaintiff and the Toyota Motor Company defendants, that this court should answer the U.S. District Court's certified question in the negative. The high-low settlement of the personal injury case does not limit the damages which may now be sought in the wrongful death case. I will defer to Governor Barnes to discuss the case law surrounding the history of the Wrongful Death Act in Georgia. Delia Bibbs was 36 years old when she was rendered a comatose as a result of her Toyota van's seatbelt releasing during a moderate collision. In the vehicle with her at the time were her three minor children. After a two-week trial on her personal injury claim, which sought damages for past and future <coughs> medical expenses and pain and suffering, as well as punitive damages, we reached a high-low agreement with the Council for Toyota. The high-low provided a bracketed range of $2 figures. If the jury's verdict exceeded the high or fell below the low dollar figure, then the high or the low would be the amount paid by Toyota, even if the, in the unlikely event of a defense verdict or a hung jury. If the jury's verdict fell in the mid-range between those $2 figures, then Toyota would pay that amount. <coughs> of particular importance to this entire consideration is the fact that Toyota insisted upon confidentiality of any amounts either above the high or below the low. That is why that this judgment or that this verdict was, could not be reduced to a judgment. It was because it was contracted between the parties that if the verdict of the jury <coughs> exceeded the high, which it did, then we, we would not render uh, or reduce this verdict to a judgment. And that today is what Toyota is attempting to capitalize on, is the fact that this was not rendered to a, or reduced to a, a written judgment by arguing that we now are not able to stop 
Toyota from arguing that they are entitled to relitigate the entire case when it is tried on the wrongful death claim. The parties did agree, however, that if the verdict came back between the high and the low in that mid-range, that that verdict would be reduced to a judgment and it would not be confidential. The agreement provided that in the event that the uh, settlement, which is other than the payment of the verdict, there would be a complete release of all claims as raised by the complaint or that could have been raised by the plaintiffs in this lawsuit. Plaintiffs agreed to satisfy any medical liens and that was the complete text of the agreement. I would point out that uh, Judge Westmoreland, the trial judge, was intimately involved in all the discussions between the parties uh, in reaching that settlement and was a witness to what the terms of that settlement was. And he, as the transcript reflects, stated unequivocally that the term wrongful death was never discussed during the times that the parties were negotiating this high-low agreement. The trial judge, uh, therefore, ruled against Toyota when it sought to include a wrongful death release as part of the provision of the negotiated settlement for the high-low agreement. The, the, uh, having been ruled against by the trial court, Toyota appealed to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals denied their appeal. Then Toyota applied for certiorari to this court, and this court in 1996 denied that uh, petition for certiorari. Therefore, the law of the case is that the plaintiff did not release the wrongful death claim or cause of action, and Toyota which is showing now that it's relentless in its attempt to overturn that decision by this court. I, I think they concede that very quickly. You spent six minutes talking about your wrongful death. The only question is what damages are attributable to the wrongful death claims you're bringing now. Well, Your Honor, uh, we are also asking they this court. Don't they concede that you can pursue your wrongful death claim? It's just a question of what damages? No, they're, they're basically saying it's duplicative damages to what was awarded in the pain and suffering claim. Right. And therefore, the only damages that we're entitled to seek are funeral and burial expenses. Okay. And that's, that's the main issue. What, why is that wrong? Pardon, Your Honor, I didn't catch the what, question. I, I mean, that's the issue that was certified is the damages. Well, we're also, as Your Honor, as, as Your Honor pointed out in uh, the case of Wynn versus Southwest Emergency Physicians, we're asking this court to also give guidance to the district court on the issue of whether or not uh, Toyota is precluded through estoppel from relitigating the entire case dealing with product defect and causation. Counsel, did, did you ask Judge Story to certify that question? Yes, we did. And, and he declined to do that, right? He did. Uh, but we believe that uh, 
he's misapplying Georgia law under the, this court's Cosby, uh, Crosby decision, uh, which basically is part of the modern trend that recognizes that if the parties, if it is clear from the parties that they intended the, their agreement to be the final decision, and a final decision was made in the case, which it was here, a jury rendered a verdict in the plaintiff's favor, then that decision could car should carry the force and effect of preclusions that would preclude them from requiring the plaintiffs to go to unnecessary trouble and expense of relitigating re the entire case. Ms. Chile, you can argue your case as you like, but you're almost halfway through your argument. I know you want to give Mr. Barnes some time. And the question that was certified is why, which damages are available? I understand your position to be all damages? Yeah, uh, yes, Your Honor. All damages for wrongful death are available. And I will yield the balance of my time to Governor Barnes. Thank you, Mr. Cheely. <coughs> yes, Your Honor, to answer the question is, it is all damages. And all we have to do is look at the release, which I know you have done, got a new Elmo, I see. It said there is specifically accepted from the release, from the high-low in the release that came about, any claim for wrongful damages. Now, my distinguished brother over here, he says, well, that doesn't mean that we can't release the damages. That issue, by the way, that double recovery issue was raised in the first, I call it Bibbs first, writ of certiorari in 1996 in this court, and they denied certiorari. So what he is saying is you can reserve the claim, but you can release some sort of damages. Does that door work both ways? For example, if I release a claim for a wreck case, can, and it does not say that I specifically relieve, uh, release the claim for the damages, can I come back later and say, oh, wait just a minute. I can seek damages even though I have released the claim. The issue, so it gets down to what does claim mean? And there's a case by Judge, uh, Judge at the time, now Judge Justice Peterson, that came about, and this is not in the brief, because uh, we just recently discovered it, and the case is called Georgia Interlocal Risk Management Agency against Sandy Springs is found at 337 Georgia Appeals 340. It deals, as Justice uh, Peterson uh, stated in the case, it deals with the issue of uh, an exclusion for a claim and an insurance uh, uh, case. But it ha had to, you had to define what a claim was. And, and Judge Peterson said in the opinion, in the local opinion, he says, listen, this is a common word. It, a claim would mean, means, and under Webster, is something that you have a right to recover. And then Black's Law Dictionary, which was also approved in the opinion, as a cause of action for money or property. So when the release says, we release all actions except for a claim for wrongful death. And by the way, this same language was carried three times, three times in the settlement documents. 
When you say accept a claim for wrongful damages, you are not release uh, or for wrongful death. You are not releasing the damages that might occur. Governor Barnes, what I think you're saying is the, the damages are attached to and a part of the claim. Is that right? Of course. And they're in, I know of no case that says you can, you can release uh, and preserve a claim and not preserve the damages, or the reverse, that you can release the claim but, but not the damages. That would create havoc if, if in the law. If they I'm didn't sorry. release the claim, well, if the claim hadn't been released, everything's gone. I'm sorry. If, if, if the claim had not been the wrongful, yeah, well, every, I think then, you're, then I think you're correct. Gone. I think if they had not, my, my understanding of the issue is is not you have your wrongful death claim. You have damages that would be attributed to that if sure. you were successful. The question is whether you can get what in in a single lawsuit would be considered a double recovery. There, and, 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 and I'm sorry, I don't mean to so cut you off. No, and the question is, there is no double recovery. And the reason is, it is two separate causes of action. There's a good case, and this is, this is cited in the brief, and it sets forth what that uh, language is. It says, the gist of an action for wrongful death is not the injury suffered by the deceased, but the injury suffered by the beneficiaries resulting from the death of the deceased. The cause of action, while dependent upon the fact of an actual tort against the deceased, accrues only by reason of the death. Now, here, here's, the, here's the issue that comes, uh, that I think confused Judge Storer, who is a great judge, by the way, and I don't disparage him in any way, and that's the reason he certified this uh, over to the court. There is an overlap of things that can be considered in both cases. The, but the, you don't even have, you don't have an identity of parties. You don't have, it's not the same cause of action. <coughs> the, the wrongful death case does not accrue until the death of the deceased. Right. Governor Barnes, I understand that. And there was considerable confusion around that area. But we had a case that was not cited in your initial brief, was barely mentioned, I think only in a footnote in your reply, the Norton case that Justice yes. Milton wrote. Oh, yes, I know. Norton. In which... Part of the question was, I mean, the argument that Norton made in that case was that they're entirely distinct cases. They and are. So, I'm sorry. And so a release by the decedent had no effect or didn't control the defenses available to the wrongful death plaintiffs. But we, we resolved some uncertainty <coughs> and said that a wrongful death action is wholly <coughs> derivative of the decedent's right of action, and any defense that would have been available uh, by or against the decedent during life transfers over, if there was a settlement before the, the death, transfers over to the wrongful death plaintiffs. No question, and Norton is correct. But Norton is not involved here. You, you would have to, to be able to apply Norton, you would have to say the plain and palpable language that accepting a claim for wrongful death does not include the damages to be uh, to be non-existent. You cannot, there is no splitting of a cause of action and the damages. They are together. You can, you, they are dependent on each other. Now, what was in Norton was, yes, there, I guess wrongful death is a lot like consortium. 
It, is, it arises from another action, and it can be discharged during the lifetime of either the party. Wrongful death can. But when it is accepted out, the damages have are, are the full value of the, of the life. And I would suggest to you, here's the, and so Norton is not applicable to, to this kind of case. It was a release case that, that uh, came up, and I think it was rightly considered, and I think it was based upon earlier law that, uh, that had been established. But here's, here's the thing. What they say is, well, there are elements in the personal injury action that go to the fact that you can consider as part of mental uh, pain and suffering your ability to work or, or, the, uh, or lost wages. Now, there was no award for lost wages in this case, but it could have been raised, uh, but could have been done. And so because that you can, the jury is charged in that case and there is a recovery in that case, you could not have that recovery in the wrongful death. The recovery in a wrongful death case is the full value of the life. You can consider what the economic side is, and you can consider the intangible side. But what you would have, if you adopt what my brother says here, then, the, then what you're actually saying is the General Assembly was wrong to allow the wrongful death case at all because you have that in every case. Just assume there was not a release here, that there was not a settlement. Then in that case, you would have wrongful death and a personal injury overlap as to the ability to earn and the ability and the economic value. Except norm, well, in many, in most wrongful death cases, you don't also have a personal injury. Uh, my experience well, has been. Well, I mean, you can, but, but, otherwise, in, in but it doesn't matter. Right. But in a case where there's a wrongful death claim yes. without a personal injury claim, there wouldn't be any potential no, no. double recovery. The only, let's say, you, but in cases where you have both, you're saying you should be able to recover for the lost, the injured plaintiff should be able to recover lost wages and the survivors should be able to recover not lost re wages. I'm sorry. They are not, I don't mean to cut you no, off. No. They are not recovering for the same basis. The survivors are recovering for the value of death. Only one element of which may be considered right. is the lost wages. For example, in an admitted case of liability and a wrongful death, if a and there was no dispute as to liability and the di no dispute as to the lost wages or the what that person would have earned in a wrongful death case, do they have to? Does the jury have to return a, a verdict for that? They do not because they're looking to the full value of the life and they use that economic value only as an indicator. So only let me ask you then: if it's considered at all yes. as an indicator. Yes. For the, to, to determine the full value of life, yes. is it fair for the jury to also consider the extent to which the defendant may have paid for lost wages previously? I've, I've, that issue is not before you, but I think it'd be barred by the collateral estoppel rule. Well, no, I, I thought that's the whole issue is, is assuming there's some overlap, do you at least get a jury instruction that says to the extent that the prior settlement covered 
The injuries covered things like lost wages or other things that are economic damages. You should not reconsider those in determining the value award in this current. I, we will cross that bridge on an instruction, but I do not believe. That, that's the question we were presented. No, what, no the that, second question: What components are barred? And what? And we argue there's nothing barred because there was an exception of the release okay. for the claim for wrongful damages. And what you what you're trying to do is parse. You're trying to change. Uh, what is suggested by my brother is that you're trying to change the standard from the full value of the life to the economic standard. That is a decision for the General Assembly. That is not a decision that the court should make. The George Thank you. Finish your train of thought. Well, the, 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 the General Assembly, and Georgia has a very broad wrongful death statute. But it is not made up of just economic and a non-economic side. Those are things that can be considered now. And so there, because there's an exception on the wrong, from the release on the wrongful death case, all damages are to be allowed. Thank you. And Mr. Lowry, uh, in response. Delia Bibb's life ended effectively when she was left in a coma at the age of 36. Their words, their brief, not mine. Delia Bibb's guardian released Toyota from any liability for any and all damages arising from that coma. Except now, wrongful death. The release does not cover a wrongful death claim, but only because if you read the release, no such claim could have been brought before she died. That simply begs the question, because the release does explicitly cover any and all damages, past, present, future, that were sought or could have been sought and recovered at the time of the settlement based on the permanent coma. Then what was the purpose of the language? The, well, the purpose of the language was to uh, recognize the fact that no wrongful death claim could have been asserted at the time. You could have, you could have listed 100 claims that couldn't have been asserted at the time. Why'd you only pick that one? Uh, I, I don't know. That's the only one the plaintiff uh, argued for later and said uh, uh, could not have been asserted at the time. I'm not aware of any other claim that couldn't have been asserted at the time based on the personal injury. But, but I mean, here's the two key mistakes. I think loss the of consortium was that uh, addressed in the personal injury claim? I, I don't know. I don't know what it said about loss of consortium. It doesn't accept that claim. I know that. Uh, I mean, the two things I think the plaintiffs are missing that are key are, first of all, just because the claims are different doesn't mean the damages are different. And that's easy if you think about it. You can have the same compensable loss recoverable under multiple legal theories. I mean, if, if Governor Barnes, in a fit of jealousy, writes all of my major clients, says a bunch of nasty things about me, ruins my law practice forever, I could recover the damages for that lost law practice under defamation. Those are the same damages that would be recoverable for tortious interference. I can't get them twice. And if I release him for all the consequences of the defamation, and then in a fit of despair, jump out my office window. My family may have a wrongful death claim against him, but it's still not going to allow a double recovery for the same economic loss in my law practice. I've already released that. How is the wrongful death claim of full value of the decedent's life the same as the personal injury claim? So this is how. There are two components for a, first of all, <clears throat> let's look at some pictures. So the, the time span of those claims the permanent personal injury damages were recoverable from age 36 at the coma until the end of her expected life at age 80. The wrongful death claims would be a subset of that. So temporally, at least, the permanent personal injury claims are broader. 
Now, as far as what you can recover, if you think about it, there are two basic concept components of wrongful death recovery in Georgia, economic and non-economic damages. With the economic damages, it's maybe really, really easy to see that if you go into a permanent coma at age 36, you have lost all of your income, all of your earning capacity for the rest of your life. I don't even think that's a contested point. The cases we cite in our brief, pages 14 to 15, settle that. But counsel, for, for this chart to be correct, you have to assume that the value of someone living in a permanent coma is zero. No, you don't. This is what you have to assume, and it is a correct statement of law, that a personal injury jury could find under Georgia law that there was no value remaining from Delia Biggs' perspective once she went into that coma. If you agree with me that the jury could have found that in the personal injury action, then it falls within the scope of the damages release. Uh, so let's talk about that non-economic component for a second. If you go into a permanent coma, your personal injury damages include compensation for the loss of everything that you otherwise would have experienced, enjoyed, accomplished, valued. All of those are recoverable under future pain and suffering for a personal injury recovery. Future pain and suffering doesn't just mean the negative consequences of an injury, like perceived pain. and. Let's look at that together. I mean, that's been Georgia law for a long time. For permanent personal injury, what is recoverable? The loss or material impairment of any power or faculty is a matter for compensation, irrespective of any fruits, pecuniary or otherwise, which the exercise of the power of the faculty might produce, and irrespective also of any conscious pain or suffering which the loss or impairment might occasion. You continued, every person is entitled to retain and enjoy each and every power of body and mind with which he or she has been endowed, and no one, without being answerable in damages, can wrongfully deprive another by a physical injury of any such power or faculty or materially impair the same. Now, you've approved that language multiple times for jury charges in permanent personal injury cases. And if you look Larry, at the- what's, what's confusing to me based on the chart you had there a moment is it seems to me that your argument is that the damages that potentially could be could be raised in a wrongful death case are simply, in this case, consumed by what was considered for the personal injury claim. And if that's the case, why do we need to accept claims for wrongful death? Well, the only reason the wrongful death claim was, it wasn't some negotiation. I mean, nobody sat down and did this. The reason the wrongful death claim is exempted is because someone on the record stated it covers all claims that could have been asserted at the time. And so based on that language, the, the negative inference was drawn, it doesn't include anything that couldn't have been asserted at the time. What's the backstop Toyota's trying to avoid here, if, if indeed this chart is correct, that all, whatever could have been alleged under a wrongful death claim that has now been accepted, is included in the personal injury claim. The, the backstop we're trying to avoid is for them to go back down to the district court and make the argument Governor Barnes and Mr. Cheeley just did, which is we can recover everything as if there had been no release. We can quite literally recover again all of the income that she lost, only this time from age 58 to 80. There would have been a much easier way to put that in a settlement agreement than exempting simply by exempting wrongful death claims. You know, most of the cases that come here come here because in oh, yeah, some sure. sense they're well, complicated, yeah. Yeah. and in some sense somebody could have gotten off that train earlier, but I've got the release that I've got, yeah. and it's plenty broad enough to do what I need it to do, which is to release all damages. Let's, say, let's say that Mrs. Bibb had died during the pendency of the lawsuit. What would the jury have been looking at as far as damages, absent a settlement? So let's suppose at the time she had already died. So in, in, on my chart, let's suppose the case was tried here after, after she died at age 58. The claims would have split at that point because at that point, you wouldn't have been able to recover any damages for personal injury after the death. 
What changes this is that she hadn't died at the time of the lawsuit. So under black letter Georgia law, you can recover permanent personal injury damages all the way through the end of your life on the mortality tables. Does that make sense? So it, it, if she had already died, then the survivors would have had the wrongful death claim for everything, the lost income, the lost joys and values of life, and the estate would have had the personal injury claim for those same components prior to age 58. What makes this different is the case was brought and settled before she died, and so on the personal injury side of the ledger, what was recoverable was everything through her death at 80, her projected death. So to circle back around to the question that I, I asked you earlier about this chart, just to make sure I fully understand your characterization of our case law, for us to conclude that you win based on the, the, the concept represented by this chart, we have to conclude that a rational jury can reasonably find that someone who is still alive, albeit in a dramatically diminished capacity, has a continuing human life of precisely zero value. You would have to find that Georgia law authorizes a personal injury to reach that conclusion, yes. And uh, that, that's right. I, I mean, I sense the skepticism in your question, and it's healthy, and I welcome it. But imagine the tragedy if that weren't the law. If someone puts me into a permanent coma at age 36, I should not have to wait until I prematurely die. And maybe I don't. Maybe I leave out my full lifespan and die on the day that you would expect me to under the mortality tables. What component of the full value of life should I not be able to recover? Any ideas? I mean, the loss of the value of raising my children? No, that's recoverable. I mean, the, the enjoyment of travel, spending time with family, anything you can think of that is an intangible value of living should be recoverable in that personal injury action that I just hypothesized. It would be terrible law if it were not. And any damages you carve out of this release, those are damages that you have to be prepared to hold are not recoverable as a matter of law in a personal injury action based on a permanent coma. And that would be bad Georgia law. I mean, when the plaintiffs say Delia Bibb's life effectively ended at age 36, that's not just rhetorical flourish. It's not just a nice turn of phrase. It is an accurate description of Georgia permanent personal injury law. Now, what the plaintiffs want you to do is just have the district court tell the jury, you know, you can recover the full value of the life. But you can't say that and just move on. You haven't answered the district court's questions then because there's no reasonable dispute that there are at least components, I would say all components, of the full value of life that are also equally robbed by a permanent coma. And that is an issue of law. That's not something you can punt to the jury. The scope of damages that were recoverable for personal injury is an issue of law. Think about closing argument. What could the plaintiffs argue in the wrongful death claim? Delia Bibbs died, so she didn't get to see her children graduate from college. No, that was recoverable for personal injury in a permanent coma. I mean, anything you think of would have been arguable. Now, the key point, I think, maybe that I want to emphasize on the breadth, I, mean, I think the economic can, damages are can easy I ask to- you before you change please. up? So in the first litigation of the school, the, there was litigation about whether the wrongful death claim was accepted at all, right? That's correct. In that litigation, was the issue of damages related to wrongful death litigated? No, and it, it couldn't have been. I mean, the, the, what, was, what was at issue in that litigation was simply whether a wrongful death claim was included in the release. And if so, as you pointed out, it would all be a lot easier. What was not litigated, but which had to be reserved until now, is what damages would be left to recover. 
So what is it that you say is still in play? Other than burial expenses for the premature death, I can't think of anything that wouldn't have been recoverable for personal injury based on the permanent coma. Even, even though we have different plaintiffs, different parties? So l let's talk about that. that. That ship has sailed a long time ago. In a case that we quote called Southern Bell versus Casson, you have very similar facts. You had a release of all damages resulting from personal injury. Then the survivors brought a wrongful death claim after the personal injury victim died. And in that court, you rejected two arguments that the plaintiffs make here. First, you rejected the argument that the different identities of the plaintiffs should allow a second recovery for the same loss. And you said no, that, that it is true that these are different <coughs> causes of action with different plaintiffs, but that is not going to authorize a recovery of the same loss. And as Justice Namias points out, that same principle was carried over unanimously in your United Health versus uh, Norton decision in March of 2017. The other point that you, can, that you rejected in the Southern Bell versus Kesson case is the idea that somehow the penal nature of the wrongful death statute should allow a second recovery for the same loss. And you said no. And, and so Southern Bell and Casson established 117 years ago that a release of the damages for personal injury has to be given an equal effect on any injuries and losses for which a wrongful death loss is uh, recovery is sought. Now, so, so I'm trying to understand, there's nothing broader in the full value of the life that's not already contained in the economic damages or the pain and suffering that is already resolved in the, in the settlement? That, that's correct. And just to be clear, it's, it's, it's the damages that could have been recovered, either for economic damages or future pain and suffering. It's, it's that there's no delta there. I mean, who knows what a jury did? Who knows what any given jury would do? But we don't read releases based on what juries might have done. I mean, we read them based on what juries could have done under the law. But the full value of life is not broader than those concepts? Or so a jury could find based on a permanent coma. In anything the jury could have awarded based on the permanent coma, they can't get now. And I'm, I'm open to suggestions, but the critical thing to remember is that wrongful death damages are assessed from the perspective of the decedent, <coughs> not, not the family. We're not talking about the value of life in the abstract with a capital L. We're not talking about life, uh, the value of life to Delia Bibb's family. We're talking about the value of life from Delia Bibb's perspective. Well, I guess the question would be then, even if a jury could consider that conceivably, might ought we not let a jury consider that? Well, but what you'd have to do is you'd have to tell a jury that the damages are limited to anything suffered for wrongful death that was not recoverable, not legally recoverable under Georgia law for a coma, a permanent coma. And, and so that, that's, that's what you'd have to do. You don't ask the jury, what do you think the differences are between a coma and death? Because our release is broader than what any given jury thinks the damages are for a coma. It's as broad as Georgia law would allow for the coma. And so if, if you're not going to do what I say, which is to answer the federal district court, yes, the release bars the recovery, and second, it bars everything except for burial expenses, then you're going to have to sit down and articulate something that would not have been recoverable as a matter of law for the coma. And, and I think you're going to spend a lot of days thinking about that, and I think your legal pad's still going to be empty. Because what you didn't need to think about is, could a jury have awarded that for the coma? Now, 
their cases, and, and I don't know the case that Governor Barnes just cited about the insurance exclusion, but the one thing that occurs to me is it's not correct that you can't release damages separately from claims. I mean, if you think about an insurance policy, many of them contain exclusions for categories of damages like lost profits, and those damages are excluded and barred even if a claim that could give rise to them is otherwise covered under the policy. It doesn't magically take back the damages. So when this release releases all damages that were recoverable based on the coma, it doesn't mean all damages recoverable based on the coma unless those same damages could also be recovered for wrongful death. And look, I mean, even if you thought the release was potentially susceptible to that possible construction, why would you construe a document to allow a double recovery if you didn't have to? Because it is, it is cleanly and surely susceptible to, to the construction that I offer you, which is that the only thing that's left are damages that weren't recoverable for personal injury. And that construction doesn't require you to violate Georgia public policy, which is against double recovery for the same loss. Again, um, though, just can I go back to Justice yes. Boggs' question? So under your reading, wrongful death claims were accepted because they couldn't have accrued yet, but that was really, even at the time the release was drafted, surplusage. I mean, that you, you stuck it in the release but it, and litigated the heck out of it, but it meant nothing. Well, we, lit we litigated the heck out of it because we wanted to avoid this litigation. <laughs> I mean, like, even if you're right, litigating costs money. So, yes, we did litigate the heck out of it, and that was precisely so that we wouldn't have to have this argument about what damages are left. And, and you know, when I say that the release carved out the wrongful damages, wrongful death claim, because it couldn't have been brought at the time, you know, that's not, that's not just me. I mean, this is, uh, if you read the yellow language, releaseors do not release releasees from any claim for Delia Bibbs' wrongful death inasmuch as Delia Bibbs has not died and no such claim was made or could have been made in the above reference lawsuits. I mean, that, that is the reason why the claim wasn't included. I'm not, I'm not just making that up. But every time it talks about this reservation, it talks about a wrongful death claim. Never does it talk about wrongful death damages. And the damages language is as broad as you could want it to be, past, present, future, direct, indirect. Except in your, my understanding of the, the first set of litigation was Toyota's argument was wrongful death claims are not accepted, that that's an incorrect view of the settlement agreement. Toyota's, Toyota's argument, as I understand it, was that when you release a personal injury claim, you are automatically also releasing the death claim. That, that view did not prevail, obviously. I think that's why what you're arguing is claim and damages are separate, and I think uh, Mr. Teeley and Governor Barnes are arguing, no, they really aren't. That, that's, that's right, but, but, but I'm right about that question. I mean, the same item of loss, the same item of damages can, that, be, re can, can be reached, but, well, but, but if you think about it, I, I mean, the same item of damages, the same item of loss clearly can be reached by multiple legal theories. I'm uh, just trying to figure out, if the concern was, oh, somewhere down the road you're going to bring a wrongful death claim and ask for all the same damages, and we'll have to acknowledge the wrongful death claim exists, but we will have to argue that there are no damages, then it would seem like you would have litigated it that way. But it seems like in the first litigation, Toyota's position was there is no exception for wrongful death claims, and nobody argued about damages. I, th I think no one did argue the damages aspect of that. I don't think that arose until this case when they actually file a wrongful death claim and they seek, they do what we feared, not what they had to do, but what we feared was that they would seek everything. Uh, and, and that's when the issue arises and that's how, why it needs to well, be decided it, it, now. You say that's what you feared, but if you really feared that 
I would expect you would be able to cite something where you you mentioned that fear in the litigation in 20 years ago. I, I am not sure that any of those pleadings are in the record of this case. I can go back and look and see what's, what's still there. Um, the record, as it came to me, as it came to you on this case, I don't think includes those. I, um, the case law, uh, this is how I see it breaking down. One thing that's very clear from the case law, from Southern Bell versus Casson, through Morton versus Georgia Railway, all the way through United Health versus Norton, is this concept. Whatever damages are settled and released in a personal injury claim, bar the recovery of those same losses in a wrongful death claim. Case law establishes that. The cases they cite, you will notice none of them involve prior settlements, prior releases of personal injury damages. All of the cases they cite, including the new ones they cite in their reply brief, they talk about the whether you can have successive suits for personal injury and wrongful death. And the law is that you can. However, that doesn't override the principle that any release damages can't be recovered again. If you read their cases and our cases, those lines of cases acknowledge each other and they recognize my rule and they also recognize that you can have successive lawsuits. But the only, only way the wrongful death plaintiffs are going to succeed under that hypothetical is for you to have delineated in the settled personal injury claim which, which claims were settled and which ones therefore survive in a wrongful death claim. This language in your release doesn't do it. The language in my release. You don't, know what, you don't know what was subsumed, right? You, you didn't have an interrogatory to the jury to determine what, 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 they, what claims were, were decided and what damages were decided. Such right. That you but, could now decide what's duplicative. But again, the release doesn't function on what the jury actually awarded or what the jury actually decided. The release functions on anything that could have been sought. And, and, and there's no dispute about that. The parties agree. That's common ground. It's anything and My that point is that you, 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 you concede that you can have a personal injury cl claim subsequently followed after the decedents died by wrongful, in wrongful death claim. But those aren't going to prevail unless you have delineated what, injury, what claims were recovered in the personal injury claim, therefore knowing which ones would survive in a wrongful death claim. Well, it, it would mostly depend on the nature of the injury. I mean, like most injuries, it's not a lost arm, for example. No, I understand. Exactly. But, but uh, all I can do is steer you back to the language of the damages release, which is any and all damages. The red lights <laughs> lit, the bells rung. Anybody have any other questions? Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Well argued on both sides. We appreciate your appearance here. Please be careful. And the uh, lady also, thank you for your appearance also.